Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Welcome into the Autzen Audibles podcast. I'm Matt Prem, Eric Scopel, Jared Mack on the show this Monday morning here, Eugene. And it's officially fall weather. If it wasn't already, we've got a good stream of water coming down from the sky. Uh, hopefully... Uh, the Ducks are practicing inside because checking out the weather this week, it's going to be a little wet in Eugene, but down south at Stanford, it's going to be in the high 80s all week pretty much, uh, especially on game day. So that was something to track. But here on today's show, uh, it's a mailbag Monday, so we're going to be discussing at length uh, this Oregon football win over the Arizona Wildcats 41 to 19. But first, before we dive in, we did get a good question uh, that's not mailbag related. It's from uh, Tall Brian 11. When are you doing the giveaway on YouTube for subscriptions? And that is a very good question. If you are not subscribed to the YouTube channel, you need to be because we're going to give away a couple free year long subscriptions. Uh, go to Oregon Ducks on 24 7 Sports. Uh, that is the account on YouTube. Go hit the subscribe button, and we originally said uh, a thousand subscribers, and I'm going to change it to the first. We're going to pick ten people out of the first five hundred, um, just because a thousand could take us a little bit, and I want to give away those those ten sooner than later. And so, make sure to go and sign up right now. It's free. Uh, and it, it's just another way to consume Oregon Duck content from us here at DuckTerritory.com. All right, Eric, uh, you have gathered the questions. Um, and pretty cool that we started getting these in Saturday, Sunday, before we even sent out the prompt. Yeah, I, I did not send a prompt out right away. It was a, Just full disclosure, I was exhausted after we recorded that. Pod. Those, those watching on YouTube, by the way, got to see me almost falling asleep live on camera. <laughs> on Saturday, or I guess it was Sunday at that point, because I was dozing there towards the end almost, and uh, didn't, didn't forgot to put the prompt up Sunday, and uh, a lot of you guys still sent out questions, which is great. So we've got a full show here, more than that in terms of the questions being asked. Always appreciate that. It means I think we're doing something right. You guys want to hear our opinions, so keep doing that for the show. Um, we'll start here with a question from at ClaytonB underscore 27. With the way the season is going across every conference, should we begin to expect survive and advance to become the mentality no matter what? And then he makes a comment here as well. Josh Pate from At Late Kick, which is the flagship 247 Sports College Football Podcast and uh, YouTube show, which is great, by the way. I recommend it. Is calling it a renaissance season, and I'm beginning to believe he's on to something. I thought we'd start here because I think it kind of speaks to where we ended our, our recap show of – kind of, hey, Oregon's not winning these games very pretty. There's not like a beauty contest to these wins. This isn't Chip Kelly in 2011 and 12 where it would be like, hey, they're going to go out and win 63-7 to against Arizona. Or even like I think it was 2014 maybe. No, it was 15 or something. One of the years they won 49 to nothing over Arizona at home. And it was just like, okay, they're, they're just on something. And 
I think it's a valid point, and I, I think there's some validity here. You look around the country, and we talked about this at the end of last week or last Saturday show or Sunday show, whatever we want to call it. Like, there's just not a lot of consistency from anybody, even at the very top. And I think while it is obviously in the best interest of the program to dominate a team like Arizona and get its reserves in sooner than later, um, I, I also think, yeah, like let's just – if Oregon wins the football game, that's good. That's that's a good starting place. It doesn't mean that fans can't be disappointed and concerned because maybe some flaws that show up against Arizona end up biting you later on against a better opponent, maybe as soon as this weekend. But um, I do think that there needs to be a little bit of a shift of, okay, you need to win you know, 50 to zero every week, or you need to win 42 to, to 20 every week. And gosh, they almost did that this last week, but there was a lot of stuff along the way that, that makes you concerned. So no, I think that point is fair. Um, and then in general, like, I don't know, I look around this country, or the country this season and, and go, boy, like, I guess I'll throw this to you, Jared. Like, I, like who, who even do we think are the, the other top teams? Like, it's, it's really hard to, to, to figure out. Like, if you were to put together a top four right now that you would say would be most deserving for a college football semifinal, I feel like that's not very easy to do. No, it's not very easy to do. I would have to say what the top four is now with Bama, Georgia, Oregon, Penn State, I feel like that would be my pick. Um, it's still early enough in the season where you don't really have a good clue on who's going to be the alpha dogs, maybe other than Bama and Georgia, because they've, they've done very well in all their games. And even though, uh, Florida played Alabama close, Florida still came on top and that's a top 10 team that, that Alabama beat. Um, as of right now, the, the survive and advance mentality is, is pretty spot on. Um, Oregon's the number three team in the country. So no matter who they're going to play, no matter if it's Stony Brook or, or Arizona or Ohio State, that team on the other sideline is going to give them their best effort. Their A game is probably always going to come out against Oregon. And if Oregon produces their A game, you know, they have the ability to beat almost anybody in the country. As we saw at Ohio State, I thought that was Oregon's A game. I don't know how much better they can play basically all season long than that game. Um, but that's when they needed it. They rose to the occasion and beat Ohio State with their A game. So they're going to have to figure out a way to, to consistently produce something close to their A game on a week-by-week -week basis because everybody else is bringing out their A game. So if they could just if they continue to win, there shouldn't be that much of a problem. Uh, obviously, you can be critical in almost every situation that happens on, on a football field, but and which which we can be to a point uh like you know saturday's performance probably should have been a little bit different than what it was but regardless i thought that was probably arizona's a game which yeah. tells you about the state of their program um with five interceptions but you know they gave it their all they game planned well they tried to exploit all everything they could out of oregon and oregon's c game still came out with a, a you know like almost a 20 point victory so it'll be interesting to follow from here on out 24 top 25 teams have lost a football game in the first four weeks of college football so these losses are going to happen teams that are ranked are going to lose games and I, I think you need to expect that that trend is going to continue this season. Um, he references Josh Pate's uh, renaissance you know, mantra that he's been pushing. 
And it's kind of true. Like there's chaos right now in college football. This season already kind of reminds me of the 2007 season. And only because the, the 07 season, I had like a ridiculous amount of teams ranked number one or number two in the country. And we might not see a lot of change between those two teams, uh, those two spots, which would be Alabama and Georgia most likely. But we're going to probably see a constant shuffle at that next tier. And I, I think if you're Oregon, Eric brought up a good point on the show uh, after the Arizona win, and then just now again, that if you look across college football, I don't think there's a definitive team outside of Oregon that you can say is the number three team in the country. Like, they maybe haven't looked good, but – there isn't another team out there that you look at and say, hey, they are by far the best of the best behind Alabama and behind Georgia. Um, I mean, it could maybe grow to a team like Penn State um, who maybe if if they keep winning these football games uh, and Oregon keeps struggling and but winning, maybe Penn State jumps them up. Um, I think maybe an Arkansas could be a team down the road that, you know, if, if they keep stacking wins, like we'll know a lot this week, they play Georgia on the road. Um, and then they play Ole Miss the next week. Like if they come out of that undefeated, like they're probably the number one team in the country, um, to be honest with you, because they would have beaten a number seven Texas A&M team, a number two Georgia team, and a, a number 12 Ole Miss team. But how likely is that? I don't feel like that's likely. So I, I think while Oregon hasn't looked good, you need to expect chaos. It's probably safe for an Oregon fan if you want to have a realistic approach and outlook to this season. It's probably realistic to say there's going to be a loss at some point this season. You need, though, to avoid the chaos, and that is a second loss and a third loss or even, God forbid, a fourth loss. No one will be down on Oregon if they lose one game to a decent opponent. It's can you avoid the chaos of being upset by a team like Stanford this weekend who you are an eight-point favorite over? Yeah, and we should note, I think Oregon actually made up a little ground against Georgia in the yes. in the AP mm-hmm. poll. So it, it, the national perception maybe doesn't align with that, um, that, that idea that Oregon is losing ground or undeserving of it. Actually, it, it seems like they're actually gaining some respect and some of that will change this weekend regard, you know, almost regardless of Oregon's outcome, assuming they win. Um, if, because as Matt said, if, if Georgia loses to Arkansas, Arkansas probably might jump Oregon. Um, and if Georgia wins, I'm, I'm assuming that win kind of solidifies their standing at two and, and maybe creates some more separation there. And in, and in fact, maybe Georgia gets a couple more first place votes from some, from some voters just because that win is a lot more impressive than anything Alabama's done thus far. All right. Skipping on to the next one from at Prince Puddles. Are we seeing load management from CJ Verdell this year due to his injury past? Hashtag Ots and Audibles. Actually, ironically, I think this is the first time we've ever heard Mario Cristobal use the term load management ever. And it was not in reference to CJ Verdell. It was in reference to Kayvon Thibodeau after Saturday's game. And he talked about how Thibodeau was on a basically a rep count. And something we talked about in the lead up to the, the game that we thought that might be the case. Um, so the idea of a load management is not a foreign concept to Mario Cristobal. I don't think he's ever used that term to describe C.J. Verdell. He has spoken in spring and fall practices about trying to be careful to limit contact that C.J. takes. 
um, but has also always been very careful to state like it's important our guys are practicing getting full tackle reps because if the first time they get that opportunity is on a Saturday in September or October, that's probably not going to end end very well. So um, absolutely, they are. I think monitoring the reps here, and I think this is one of the benefits of having I think two very good running backs in Travis Dye and CJ Verdell is is that you can do this and still have success offensively. Um, say what you want about CJ not touching the ball very much, but you go look and see the drives that Oregon had when and Travis was the primary back. It's not like the offense sucked. Right. Um, you know, and in fact, this is going to just lead into a couple questions. We're going to talk more about this throughout the show. I think there's the sense that the Oregon offense was just absolute garbage against Arizona. And there were a couple sequences in the middle of the game that wasn't very good. But you go and look at the stats and you go look at the drive charts. Like Oregon actually was really, really good. Start very, very good at the end of the game. Um, so we'll get to that later. But like, I don't. I, I don't think it's I don't think it's a terrible thing to limit CJ's reps a little bit. But I also think, and this is what we saw certainly this last game against Arizona, when the game's on the line and he's needed, he needs to play and he needs to be the, the primary running back and probably the only running back on the field. And that's what we saw there. When Oregon needed to create separation to finish that game against Arizona, who was on the field, who was the one creating 10, 15-yard runs a couple of times in that, that drive to go ahead um, that resulted in – and I think the touchdown passed. So, um, yeah, I think definitely load management. And I, I, we've talked about it. Like, they're, they're being careful here. They are being careful. I I, I don't know. I, I'd like to think it is a load management perspective. Um, but then they're also, like, load managing Travis Dye, too. Because Dye's last run of the game was with 52 seconds left in the third quarter. So that was kind of perplexing as we were watching. Um Obviously, that's a little skewed because Oregon's third quarter, they basically had the ball for like two minutes max. Uh, that was all just Arizona and just running down the field. But it's it's been a little interesting to see their load management just of almost every player personnel this season. Um, that's like the constantly ro- rotating offensive line, I feel like, has something to do with that, where they're not, other than Alex Forsyth, who's basically, and TJ Bass, who's basically out there every play. I think they're all load managing to some some degree or they're trying to find the best five or they're, I don't know. So that's where I'm at with, with the Verdell stuff. I honestly just don't know at this point what they are doing because it, they shouldn't, the last couple of games, they shouldn't get to the point where uh, they need Verdell to go in there in the fourth quarter and win the game. You know, that should be time for the Byron Carvels, the Seven McGees and the Trey Bensons to go out there and, and get their reps. So if they load manage by not playing C.J. Verdell in the fourth quarter because they're up by 45 points, I think that's the better way to go about it than not letting them play in the second and third quarter. Do you think, Jared, the reason they were behind was just because he didn't play, though? Was that primarily no. why they were in the hole? Uh, no. You should push back uh, a little bit. Yeah, no, 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 I understand. I, I don't think that's primarily why that they're not ahead, but I don't. I don't see the point of limiting his snap counts in the middle of a game. That's all. In in September. Like, these are the times where you want to get him in the game and get him accustomed to the whatever group of offensive line he's playing with because he has no idea who's going – well, he does. But, you know, there's a, a new group every time he steps out onto the field. An interesting pers- look at across the conference. I'm kind of surprised by this. Um even though Verdell has had limited snaps uh, against Stony Brook and then also against Arizona, he is tied for the most attempts in a game in the conference at 15 and a quarter. 
BJ Baylor of Oregon State is the other one that he's tied with. Um, and then you just look at straight attempts. Travis Dye is 15th in the in the in the conference. I, I think the one I'm the most surprised about, and that's probably I guess vultured some snaps away from Verdell is Anthony Brown. He is 12th in the conference and carries this season. Um, one spot ahead of, of Travis Dye. He's in a three-way tie with two other players. Um, he has 42 carries in four games. I think that right there is kind of vulturing some of the workload that could go to a, a CJ Verdell. But I do agree that Cristobal was asked on on Saturday night, is is there a load management situation with Verdell? And he kind of said no, that you know, just that's how the rotations of the running backs between him and Dye worked out. And he is right that they only had eight offensive snaps in the third quarter, and that played a factor into how many carries Verdell got as well. But I think it's clear that Jared also is correct here that they're doing load management for both, I think. Um, and I don't like it. I, I think you run with the guy that is your best guy and you play him. And if he gets hurt, then you have to adjust. Like I understand doing it against Stony Brook. Like that, that's a game that you should win. That's a game that even if God forbid you lose, it takes you out of the playoff chance, but your goals of winning the conference, which is always your primary goal, because if you win the conference more often than not, you're going to be in discussion for the college football playoff in some capacity. So doing it against Arizona, like I would much rather them say, Hey, we're, we're going to, we're going to play you for three quarters and give you the normal amounts of reps, because we believe that if, if we give all our, our best guys, the normal amount of reps, through two and a half or through three quarters, the game becomes out of hand where we don't have to load manage you throughout the entire course of a game because you're going to sit the entire fourth or part of even the third quarter. And I think that, to me, is what makes me so frustrated with the, the rotations and the you know, whether it's at running back or whether it's an offensive line or whether it's at receiver or tight end, um, what have you. I, I, I think if you just stick with your best players – and let them play out their the game, you'll still get to a point where you can get these other guys reps. You can still get your backup running back group, your second and third string receivers, your backup offensive linemen. They can still get their reps. It'll just be for the entire fourth quarter instead of every third or fourth right. possession during the game. Mm -hmm. I, I, I still – I don't know. I, I probably am – Less agreeing with you guys than I expect to be. I just, I, I, I don't know. I, I think there's some validity to resting guys and, and, and managing reps, but. I'm, that's no, just, I'm not that, saying that there's not validity. I mean, yeah. you see it all the time. Like, but in a game against Arizona, I feel like it was, it's, it's a different type of circumstance than against Stony Brook where they were seemingly like resting a bunch of dudes on purpose. Like basically everybody on their defensive line. Right. And they had everybody else playing full reps all game long other than. I guess the offensive line, but that's all. Yeah, I, I think they need to be careful with them. And it's like, hey, when it's a a three-score game in the fourth quarter, Verdell shouldn't be out there. But 
it's like they're operating with that they're just already playing with a three score lead. And that's kind of what led to, in my opinion, whether it's Verdell or other players, you know, what led to them having a five point lead in the fourth quarter with Arizona having the ball. Like, I, I think to me, it just feels a little, and this may be overcritical, but they're outsmarting themselves, I think. Yeah, I don't know. I just I also go back to 19 and feel like, boy, I would have loved to have had Verdell in some second halves if they would have been more careful monitoring him in the first. And, and that's what I think they're kind of guarding against. And and I don't know. I, I, it's a, it's not an easy one. And it is September, so it's early on in the season. I, I just think you look around and you brought up some of the stats in terms of a, a carries per, per game perspective. And I, I think what you're seeing is collectively everybody has two running backs pretty much. And they use them in conjunction with each other and off each other. Like even like, look at UCLA. I think we all think Zach Charbonnet is probably the most talented running back in the conference, but Britton Brown still carries it a lot. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and the NFL, it's the same way. So um, I think it's running back's a hard one too of balancing. If it's, we're just talking about running back, the offensive line stuff, I probably, and the receiver stuff, I probably lean more with you guys. I think the running back part is, I don't know. I think you gotta be careful at times. That doesn't mean I think I, it helps that I think it helps for you that, that there's die. Like, yeah, exactly. Die is is clearly someone this season who has taken another step in his development. I think it was 2020, and he was he looked really good. But Travis in 2021 has also looked significantly better. And I think just seeing what he's done in his career, you you know that you've got a guy that that probably starts for at least half the Pac-12. And he's your backup. Yeah, and I don't even think they see him as backup. I think it's one A, one B. Yes, and that's and that's, and that's and that's what I see more than load management is more of just like we've got two guys we want to try to get the ball to. And you can argue, I think, probably fairly at times that Verdell needs to be on the field more than than Die, but clearly they're trying to do that. So um, I don't know. It's a tough one. All right, next I mean, one. Die averages more yards per touch than Verdell does by far. So it's like one and it's like one and, a, and three quarters of a yard difference. Blitted to get both of them out there. All right, let's jump to the next one because um, we're already at twenty minutes and we haven't got to the third question. At Drew Goley asks, how concerning is the offensive line at this point, especially given Cristobal's coaching background? Hashtag odds and audibles. Um, there were bad sequences on Saturday. There were also sequences where this group was really, really dominant, and I, I mean, I. There were a couple drives in the first quarter that was like, okay, this is what we saw against Ohio State. Here they are again. And then there were sequences in the middle of the game where it was like, this is just not good enough. And they couldn't move the football. And having rewatched it, I don't know how much of that was on the offensive line even then, though. Um, I mean, there were some really – I mean, Jared, how many just poor throws – I mean, we're going to get to this in a second with Anthony Brown, so I don't want to run through all our Anthony Brown stuff. But, like, Brown probably had – close to 10 throws that were just bad decisions, whether it was throw to the wrong guy, just a throw that's not accurate. Um, and I'm not saying those all took place in the middle of the game where they weren't successful, but um, I mean, like, sure. Okay. Like for sure. The, the, the sack in the end zone, the safety that's on the offensive line. Alex Forsyth got basically pushed back like a tackling sled by Muhammad Diallo, um, by the way, a former Oregon commit that's on the offensive line. Um, there were a couple of other instances where they were sacked or there was quarterback contact. That's maybe on the offensive line. I, I think a lot of this, the, the running game wasn't bad in this game. Like, you know, no. and and I didn't see, honestly, I didn't see a ton that makes me go like, yeah, the offensive line was awful here. I actually graded them better than a lot of the position groups. So um, I don't know. Do you, do you disagree with that, Jared, having rewatched it? I mean, I don't know. I, I 
I mean, I wouldn't say this was their best performance, obviously. They were better against Ohio State, and they were probably better at times against Stony Brook. But, like, I don't think they were terrible here, and I'm not concerned to the point where I'm like, boy, they, they're going to be hosed going forward. No, I, I don't disagree with you at all. Arizona's a tough team to block for. Uh, you kind of heard Alex Forsythe talk about it in his like, post-game press conference where he, he talked about how they do a lot of double stunts, and it, it took a little bit of time for them to get used to that. Um, it's an aggressive defense. You you saw all of their aggression basically all day long against Anthony Brown and just trying to get the quarterback. Um, I thought their run blocking was really good at points. Um, you know, Travis Dye had like his 53-yard carry. CJ Verdell had a bunch of good rushes in the fourth quarter. I thought they were fine. Uh, a lot of the times they provided enough protection for Anthony Brown to at least understand where he was in the pocket and move up and throw or move up and run or whatever the case may be. Um, I mean, there were a couple of plays where it wasn't great, but that's always going to happen in a game. Uh, like this, like the safety in the end zone, like basically everybody in the offensive line got manhandled. Uh, yeah. You can't put that on like one person at all. It was just all five of them, but that happens. The, the, the crappy thing about that part is that it happened in the end zone. It wasn't at like the 45 yard line where it was just a sack. So I, I, I'm not really concerned about Oregon's offensive line. I think everybody kind of expects it to be like 2019's group with, you know, five NFLers or four NFLers, excuse me. That's not the case. There's no, you know, top 10 pick in Panay Sewell this, this year around. So, but it, at the end of the day, it's still a good offensive line. They still have talent. They're, I feel like subconsciously, I feel like they're still trying to figure out who's the best five, which I don't know what's going on there, but they have, at this point, they genuinely have like eight or nine guys who play every single game at offensive line, and they all do a certain job, and they all do it pretty well. I'm not too concerned about the offensive line. I think Jared makes a great point that a lot of people are looking at this unit and saying that they need to be similar, if not better, than 2019. And the rankings – from a recruiting perspective, say they should be because every single guy on this starting lineup, except for um, Penne Sewell, is not as it, it, it is not as highly regarded as, as an offensive lineman that's starting right now. So, on one hand, it's like are they underperforming? Kind of. Um, on the other hand, like I don't think. Like what Jared said, there's a first-round lock at any position of this group. Um, I do think you, if you run like Oregon has this season, and they are one of the conference's best rushing teams uh, out there. I mean, they are third in the conference in rushing yards per game at 206 yards. Um, their average is over five, and that's – you know, a considerable jump from 28 from 2020, um, a considerable jump from 2019 with had all those elite offensive linemen. It's 2018 as well. And, and 2017 uh, is the first time that Oregon's had a, an offensive line of over five yards per carry since this season. So, um, and, and those are all years that crystal ball has been here. So, if you look at it, the Oregon offensive line is performing at its best. You know, the, the running backs are providing the best production 
during Cristobal's time here at Oregon. And in large part, that's because of the guys up front opening up the holes. Um, so I, I don't think there's any major concern. My one concern I do have is back-to-back games now, we've seen the offensive line just get brutalized against a far inferior opponent late in the second quarter to kill drives that resulted in like back-to-back sacks. Um, it happened against Stony Brook, which ended at the first half. And then against Arizona, there was the safety. Like that's just inexcusable. And it's not entirely on the offensive line's fault. You know, Anthony Brown, I'm sure needs to get the ball out quicker, but nonetheless, they've, they've had back-to-back weeks where some teams have brought some pressure and it's almost kind of opening this door where it's, you might've found the crack to Oregon's offense. If you bring a ton of pressure you're going to get an indecisive quarterback a little bit who's a little in, inaccurate and a good chance that you're going to get a good sack, which could really disrupt this offense. I don't think the talent level on this team, that offensive line from a recruiting perspective is is very good, actually, um, just on the rankings. I think there's one four-star who starts and the rest are all either Jucos or a former walk-on. So, I mean, like it's kind of, they've said they're a ragtag group, and I think that's kind of true. In terms of how they're Forsyth was a four star. Bass was Forsyth uh, three star college guys. George Moore was a four star. Those um, are all three stars. Those are all they're all they're all three star JUCOs. Really? I think any of my yeah. maybe Sala was a four. Jones was the two hundred and forty fourth best player, and and Dawson was two sixty five. Yeah. So it, I mean, it's it's like a bunch of threes and fours, and a form of walk on. So I think collectively, like that's the thing. I think where fans get frustrated is they're like, well, we've got these five stars waiting in the balance or whatever, like Kingsley and Hoon Hoon, all those guys. Who aren't playing right now like i get it because people get excited by recruiting rankings and right. that's just that's just the way it works here and, and sometimes guys are developed better or fit better in schemes so um we can i don't know we can talk about this for the whole season i think fans are always going to be frustrated with non-five-star recruits playing over five-star recruits and i think that's part of this maybe i'm wrong all right next one from at quack attack one two three Similar to how Brown was brought in on certain packages last season, is it possible they do the same thing with Ty Thompson? Brown just can't seem to make accurate vertical throws or or hit the receivers while in stride. And I just don't see that changing drastically. Hashtag odds and audibles. That's a really good question. Um, Not the first part as much as the second part, because I go, okay, you inserted Brown into games last year as a running quarterback. You didn't insert him to throw the ball down the field. Like, you're asking basically the backup to do the job Brown is supposed to do. Um, like I understand that you see that. I mean, you do see it happen where you insert a guy who's a little more athletic as kind of a running more mobile quarterback. Um, that's not what you're asking to do here. You're asking the more mobile quarterback who's a starter to come off the field in place of the freshman quarterback who's going to throw the ball. I don't think that makes any sense. So um, I do 100% agree with the second part, though. I mean, that's that's just the way it is. And that was the point I was tr- kind of trying to make on – on Saturday directly after the game. And then after rewatching it with Jared, I think we both agree. It's maybe even a little bit worse on rewatch than it was live in terms of some of the decisions he made and some of the, just the routes he didn't even attempt to throw to. Um, and Jared can run through some of that and he'll have a story on, on his machinations on probably up when you're listening to this or after you're listening to this. So I understand the point there. And that's kind of my concern with this offense is, is just do they are they able to from quarterback manufacture anything down the field? And 
I don't see any way, though, just to answer the first part, that you would say, Ty Thompson, you're just going to come in on third and longs and be our, our down-the-field passer. That just I've never seen that happen, like, really at any level. Maybe it happens at, like, high school, but, like, that's just a weird thing to try to draw yeah. up. Like, I, I don't see that working. Yeah, Quack Attack, uh, I feel like your the first part of your question is basically asking uh, when does Ty Thompson start? Because you're asking him to do all of the starting duties of throwing the football and maybe not running it as often as Brown. Um, yeah, it was uh, on the rewatch. Um, yeah, I've gone over this a couple of times in, in my machinations column, which comes out on every Monday on DuckTerritory.com. Um, but Anthony Brown seemingly has the same issues week after week and and every one of these rewatches uh you know we're not we're not playing football for the Oregon Ducks we I you know I I I don't have the same experience that Brown does on the field but there are points when when watching the game and rewatching it where you break it down just through the film room which they do all the time at Oregon where Brown just makes simple mistakes um there was a pass to Johnny Johnson on Saturday that ended in a defensive pass interference where if Brown holds the ball for a, like literally a split second longer, no more than a half second, and he launches yeah. it to Maliki Matabao running down the, the sideline, he had a wide open touchdown. So that that happens far too often. I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if he doesn't have the confidence in himself to throw a deep ball because he hasn't connected on one yet this year. Um, you know, his longest pass of the year was to Jalen Red on Saturday, which is a 63-yarder, but that was probably 20 yards in the air, 25. Good throw. Don't get me wrong. Good read. He talked about it post-game. He had the exact perfect read, which shows you that he can do those types of things on the football field. Um, but it's tough. And it doesn't even have to go just for the deep passing. There's a, there's a moment in the – I believe it was the third quarter – uh, second quarter, excuse me, where Seven McGee was in the game. He comes out of the backfield and makes a great cut route on a linebacker. He's wide open. Brown gets pressure, but the offensive line actually does a great job of pushing away the pressure to the point where both offensive linemen and defensive linemen are on the ground. So Brown, in this in this screenshot that I have, Brown has the whole left side of the field to either run or throw a quick five-yard pass to Seven McGee and have him run for the first down. And instead, he seemingly panic, scrambles, and tries to throw a dart to Terrence Ferguson along the sideline, who's blanketed in coverage, and it's incomplete. So it's moments like that where you begin to question, like, how often can this happen before anything starts to change? Yeah. And at this point, the answer is nothing. Like, it's just it. That's just how it is. I, I think there's, and I'm not trying to call out um, Quack Attack here at all. But I think there is a section of the Oregon fan base that just is trying to will Ty Thompson being <laughs> the better quarterback and right. the better option short and long term for Oregon this season without really actually looking and seeing that he's not. Like, as of right now, like – we're trying to skip the parts of development and just get to the stardom and plug and play. And, and I think from what we have seen in the limited time that he has played and, and you have to admit, yes, it, it is limited. It's a very small sample size, but Eric 
brought this up on the post-game show after Arizona that I don't think he's ready yet. And at least not ready to lead a, a, a team to go 12 and one and win the conference championship and be in the playoff hunt or to go 13 and oh. Um, I mean, if you're fine having mistakes and having a season that's nine and three or eight and four before a bowl game, like then, yeah, maybe he is ready for that. But if, if you're wanting a chance to win a playoff game or to get to the playoffs or to win the conference, I don't think he's the best option and that's okay. Like, I just, I just feel like we're, there's a part of the fan base right now that's just trying to just make him the starter, even though what we've seen, even if it's a limited amount, doesn't tell us that's what he's ready for. Like, I don't know. I, I just feel like we're just trying to make him be the starter because he's the highest rated recruit in program history. And it's evident that it always doesn't work that way. It, you know, it doesn't always work that way. Like guys have to develop, they have to get better. And while we've heard good things about Ty Thompson, when we've seen him play, we haven't walked away feeling like he's just drastically better than Anthony Brown. This would be a totally different conversation if Oregon hadn't beaten Ohio State. Mm-hmm. I think we'd be sitting here going like, we'd be like really on the fence of like, well, they can still win the conference. Is it worth doing this? The fact that they're in the college football playoff challenge, like, and right at the top of it, like they're, they're, they're basically in a spot where they control their own destiny. Do you really want to, put the reins in an 18, 19 year old kid's hands and let him do it after the guy who's starting beat Ohio state. And that's with me acknowledging the flaws of Anthony Brown that we've talked about and that I brought up because I do think they're legitimate. And we've now have enough of a sample size to say like Anthony Brown probably isn't going to be the best quarterback every time Oregon takes the field. Um, I actually would say two of the first three, two of the first, well, yeah, two of the first three games, I would say that was the case. Jake Kaner was better. CJ Stroud mm-hmm. was better. I think this weekend with Tanner McKee, there's a chance that that's the case again, frankly. Um, and that doesn't mean Anthony Brown stinks. and doesn't mean this can't, team can't win games because they've already, they're two and zero already, in my opinion, with facing better quarterback play. Um, okay. I just, I do think there is legitimate concerns about what's the, what's the ceiling of this offense. And I don't with any level of confidence believe Ty Thompson makes this offense any better, which is the situation you're in right now. Um, and and we'll, we will see if the staff thinks differently in the future here, because if they make a, if they do make the decision, and I think Matt brought this up in the offseason of going the whole Kelly Bryant to Trevor Lawrence thing, where it's just the veteran guy is is good and competent. We're still in the playoff chase, but bringing in the younger, talented guy takes us a step up. Maybe maybe that's the thing that happens, but I don't see any evidence at all that that is even really in the cards right now. And Oregon continues to be unbeaten, and I just don't see why you would make a change. So that's where I'm at. All right. A couple more here to wrap up. One from at Mav Eric Duck. Hashtag Ops and Audibles. Hashtag Mailbag Monday. Hashtag Go Ducks. A lot of hashtags. I feel like Oregon State and UCLA might annihilate us if we can't figure out a way to stop the up-tempo spread offense. Fans obviously are familiar with the Ohio State play. They ran tempo and Oregon was their defensive backs were looking at their wrists while the ball was being snapped. That wasn't good. Um, we haven't seen anything like it since, but both Stony Brook and Arizona on their like best offensive drives were going pretty fast. They were trying to go quickly. And they, I think there is a sense here. It's kind of funny because 
which college football program really made tempo a thing, it was Oregon about a decade ago. And now which thing is arguably the biggest thorn in Oregon's side? It's teams going tempo. So there's a little irony here. Um, I don't know about correcting it. It's tough. I mean, I, I, this is a question that James Crepia from the Oregonians asked. Like, what do you do? Um, how do they prepare for this? Good thing Stanford won't be a team going tempo at all. Um, and then we'll have a bye week wow. and then they'll play Cal. And that's that's three straight weeks where they won't have to face a team trying to go tempo. But this is a thing that, as as the question asks here, that Oregon State will employ. And that, you certainly UCLA will employ. Um, I'm definitely a little concerned about this. You know, I think Oregon, from a scheme perspective and a and an offensive perspective, has has shown an ability to put opposing defenses in in issues with the way they've scripted games, especially against Ohio State. And we've seen now, the last couple of weeks, the same kind of thing happen against lesser competition because of this this tempo sort of stuff. I don't know. Like, what's your concern level, Jared? Are we doing like on a scale of one to ten? You pick. Okay, I'll do one to ten. Uh, right now, I would say it's probably like a four and a half. Okay. Uh, I, I I think it's that low because we haven't seen somebody go up tempo for like a full game. Sure. Uh, it's definitely been concerning at points. Um, but it's, it's kind of similar to how Oregon's defense was in 2019, where like they might get shredded over the open field, but in the red zone, they always seem to have that bend don't break mentality and force opponents to like leave with just a field goal or stop them on fourth down because the field shrinks. So I think that might be somewhat of the case here. Uh, I, I do think that this can be a solvable problem in that bye week. Uh, like you said, Stanford will not be going up tempo. If they did, I think hell would freeze over. So watch out <laughs> if if they start going up tempo and don't run twelve personnel, which is our next question. Um, yep. Then that might be <laughs> that might be something to look at. But yeah, I would say right now I'm I am concerned about it. I'm not freaking out over it. I think the first thing Oregon should try to do is look into solving other personnel packages that give them issues. Uh, which mm -hmm. actually concerned me a great bit more. But for now, it's definitely something to keep an eye on. Um, Oregon State, UCLA, those are going to be very interesting games to see what Oregon does. And they have UCLA up first, and that's Chip Kelly. That's someone that Oregon fans are very well aware of, and his offense has not slowed down at all this year. So to see the in-game adjustments and adjustments made in that bye week for UCLA or after Cal is going to be – it's going to be interesting to see. I'm more concerned about Oregon's inability to get third down stops on a consistent basis than mm -hmm. I am um, the rushing attack. Oregon is 101st in the country in defending third downs. And while I don't know the data, it's pretty. it would be something that we could probably fi figure out. I'd love to know the down and distance because I'd also be pretty surprised think that a lot of it's third and shorts um feels like teams are converting third and longs on a consistent basis against oregon um and that is more concerning to me than oregon being able to stop up tempo and part of it could be because of up tempo but um i i just i don't know like i i the up tempo stuff the answer to the question it this isn't new. It's not new to college football. So it is a little surprising that Oregon is having such a hard time preparing for it because basically everybody in college athletics runs some kind of up-tempo system on offense now. 
Like it might not be their primary play calls, but everyone's got at least a package where they go tempo. So you you see it almost every week, unless you play a team like a Stanford, an Air Force, uh, an Army, a Navy. Um, I'm trying to think of other teams that are just like very old school run run heavy. Um, but so that that is a little concerning, but I've got a lot of other concerns than I do um, as much as, as tempo. I, I'm way more concerned about this last question from at Johnny the K. How should Oregon respond to its difficulty defending against double tight end sets, something Stanford employs with regularity? Um, that's like the term that, they, that that I've learned more as I've learned more about football. That's 12 personnel when they've got two tight ends out there. Um, so that's that's you'll hear Mario Cristobal talk about that on, on press conferences. That's what he's referring to. Some of you know this. Some of you might not. Just just giving a little bit of a, some jargon there. This is a tough question to answer because I part of me thinks that there are some personnel limitations that Oregon has right now. And these weren't personnel limitations we expected they had in the preseason. But there is, I think, an impact and an effect that you I'm seeing now when teams do go in and go to tight end where Oregon tries to play some – it has to play its linebackers. They can't go dime, obviously, in that spot. And, and they, they have a hard time when they've got – I mean, no school's great. I don't want to just pick on that other spot, but I don't know if Nate Hukliani and, and Keith Brown are going to give you the type of, uh, I guess, execution that you really, really need against bigger, stronger fronts like that. And then the other part of it, right? I should say against the tight ends in particular. And then the other part of it is, is I think maybe you would argue, Hey, try to put an def- extra defensive lineman out there, but I don't know if there's been, I mean, that's maybe a bigger concern to me than inside linebacker is just the defensive line group. Um, I think Brandon Dorless is pretty good, and I think Keanu Hudson has been pretty good. I don't know if there's another guy I'm, like, really high on. I think Jason Jones has had some moments in the middle. Um, but other than that, it's it, – I I, 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 I I don't know. I mean, it's not entirely personnel-driven, I'm sure. I'm sure there's a lot more to it. But, like, I don't know what the quick fix is of, like, Justin Flo's not walking back through this door. You know, they don't have – I mean, if Kayvon Thibodeau's not playing, I think that's part of it too. Um, you know, even Braden Swinson missing time. I mean, you're missing so many of your top guys in the front seven right now that I, part of me just goes like, I think this is just kind of a, a really tough situation to be in. And I'm sure Tim Deruder will, we're talking with him in a couple of hours. Where I'm sure we'll get quite a few questions about this topic. I'll be curious to see what he says. And I'm sure there are things schematically he will try to employ and do. But like part of me is like, I, I think they just kind of have the guys they have. And, and that sort of isn't maybe the greatest setup against an offense that, that wants to put out, tw- you know, two tight ends, go a little heavier and, and try to pound it at you or even throw to those tight ends. I, I'm pretty concerned with you about the 21 personnel here. Um, I, I think part of Oregon's struggles has been injuries and part of it has been execution. I, I think I was talking with Ken Go, um, the Oregonian. He was at the Arizona game, and um, this is before the game started. And I brought up that we're starting to get to the point where it was like in 2014 for Oregon with injuries, where it doesn't really matter. You you have this mantra of next man up, you know, no excuses, whatnot. But eventually – it gets to a point where the next man up is just not going to be ready or good enough 
to handle the workload that he's now being dealt. Because for matter of fact, and this could be really cold, but a guy is at fifth string or sixth string linebacker for a reason. He, he's not near the level that the guy that was number one was. And and you lose Isaac Slade Matuatia to a transfer, who was your starter. And then Drew Mathis is now gone because of an injury. And then his backup and Justin Flo is now out with an injury. And now you've got Keith Brown and you've got a bunch of former walk-ons playing the position or safeties, you know, bumping down to to linebacker. You're just not going to get the same level of production that you would have expected with one of the first two or three guys. And when those guys get tired, when Keith Brown gets tired and has to come off, like you're, you're going to see a drop off. And, and so I, I do think injuries are part of the issue for Oregon. Um, and then I also think there's just straight up execution issues. They're, they're not playing well at, in spurts. Like Arizona's offensive line was blowing off the D line for Oregon. And I, I think that is really concerning. And the defensive linemen need to do a better job of, chewing up blocks and they need to have somebody demand the double team Mm -hmm. because if they don't, if they don't demand the double team, it's five on three and you've got two linemen going to the second level to take on linebackers. And I know Oregon has a ton of confidence in these guys, but whether at the high school level or at the NFL level, if you've got an offensive lineman one-on-one against a, a linebacker, the offensive lineman more, more often than not will win that battle. Like, it, 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 that just always happens. And so you need a defensive lineman. Somebody's got to emerge, and it could be because there's no KT right now. Yeah, but someone's got to emerge where they're going to demand the double team because if, if it's one-on-one blocking, that's what leads to big gains on the ground. That's all I got. No, I, I, I agree. This, no, it's it's tough. I think you guys have perfectly said it. Um, it's a mix of injuries, personnel, depth, and Kayvon Thibodeau being out, which is, you know, the, the, the big portions of why Oregon's defense is having trouble in this 12 personnel set, uh, why their defensive line can't really get a pass rush um, unless they're throwing extra guys where where Arizona actually, I thought, did a great job of responding to, to Oregon's blitzes by having simple routes in the flats and simple crossing routes. Um, I thought Arizona schemed well and executed well. Um, Oregon needs to bring pressure without Kayvon to really pr- apply any any sort of harsh situation around a quarterback or a running back. Uh, that's just That's just the position they find themselves in due to injury. Uh, it could be entirely different in another world, but we're currently living in this one, so we don't have don't have a choice other than to accept it. So uh, Thibodeau could be back against Stanford. We'll see what Cristobal says in a couple hours. Um, if he is, I think that'll help. I thought that the few plays he was in on passing downs, he did apply enough pressure to force uh, McLeod to roll out or do something like that. Uh, he just wasn't in there for more than ten or for more than fifteen snaps. I had him clocked at 13 snaps, and Coach Chris spot to the game said he was on a on a pitch count or, or a snap count and wanted to get six to ten. And you know, 80% of the time, one of those snaps isn't going to matter. So I thought Kayvon probably had three snaps where he 
applied pressure, which sounds about right. Um, we'll see how he goes against Stanford if he goes, and I think that'll be, I think that'll be a huge barometer of success when it comes to this twelve personnel package and applying a pass rush to see what it looks like with Kayvon Thibodeau and Noah Sewell and, and maybe a, a healthy Braden Swinson, because for the last few weeks it's just been Swinson and, Newell, and Sewell, and last week it was just Noah Sewell, so. Uh, and we haven't had a fully healthy defense since the first quarter against Fresno State. So we're all looking to see what that looks like again. Real quick, do we feel like this is fixable? Like, is it just get healthy? I mean, Kayvon Thibodeau is, is the best player in the country. And he's a guy who can absolutely rack up the sacks and rack up pass rushes and command a double team nearly every single time he's on the field. And I, I think the Justin Flo thing, and not to minimize the other inside guys who aren't available, but if the Justin Flo we saw play the way he played against Fresno State, if he's available the whole season, I don't think we're having this conversation either um, because I think he would be a significant upgrade over what is currently at the position. I don't want to, like, trash Keith Brown or Nathan Cleani because both of them are, are doing their best, and this is a totally new rules for both of them, and they're both making good plays. If they had an interception there, um, this last weekend, I think he made seven tackles, and Brown was in on a bunch too. Um, but watching the game again, there was also some there were some 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 mistakes being made, and that's to be expected. So, um, like, yeah, and I think I mean, I, they'll, I bet you they'll play better this week against Stanford, just because that's the only thing you have to really prepare for almost against Stanford. I mean, not the only thing they run out of different. They have sometimes they do have three receivers out there or multiple backs, but like this is a team where it's like you go in knowing like they're going to be in the, this is like one of their primary packages. Whereas Arizona, like as Jason Shearer said, they run out of a bunch of different stuff. They have like 200 play playbook. Um, it's a lot to prepare for. So I would expect and hope that they are better suited this week from a schematic perspective and find some wrinkles and find some ways to do this. But I guess we'll just have to wait till Saturday. It's going to do it for us here on the Austin Audible's podcast. Thank you for submitting your questions to the show. We really appreciate it. Also, make sure to go and subscribe to the YouTube channel, Oregon Ducks on 24-7 Sports. We'll be posting these as well as other things on the show uh, throughout the season, throughout the year. And remember, if you're one of the first 500 subscribers to the channel, um, we will be giving away some free year-long subscriptions to a couple lucky of those subscribers. We said 10 people we would select. So good chance for you to get a, a free year subscription to duckterritory.com for that as well. All right. For Jared, for Eric, uh, we all say thank you for listening to the show. And until later this week, you've been listening to the Odds and Audibles podcast. Talk to you there, folks. Peace. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? Bell. 
and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.